Welcome to Banter Radio. I'm your host, Will Sherwin. And before I started doing this podcast, I did some searching online for uh, freely available audio and podcasts involving uh, narrative therapists. And I found some stuff that I really enjoyed and learned from. So I wanted to share with you on this episode some excerpts from the audio files that I discovered. Um, These are audio made between 2005 to 2015. And I'm thinking of this kind of like a collective audio bouquet of different voices in the narrative therapy world. Or like a sampler platter where you hear a little bit of it in these excerpts and you can go online to sfbantr.org and find links to the full episodes if you've heard something that interests you. That's the idea. Enjoy the show. We're going to go chronologically, starting in October 2005, when Michael White was interviewed for the show All in the Mind, a podcast by Australia's Radio National. What is narrative therapy? I guess it's to do with the idea that uh, people give meaning to their experiences of life by taking them into a storyline and to make meaning as an achievement. And... uh, but it's an achievement that actually has consequences. The storylines shape our life. They have very significant ramifications for our relationships and for how we live our life. Your practice also implies that we sometimes need help to observe our stories, that they often become skewed in perspective. So in this sense, what's a thin story? A thin story is a story that usually uh, features a, a whole range of uh, very definite conclusions about one's life and one's identity. And um, these are often stories that represent, uh, as I said, their life to be quite um, hopeless and uh, often it features conclusions about their inadequacy and incompetence. And so uh, that, that's what I'm referring to when I talk about a thin story. And um, I, I'm really interested in engaging people in conversations in which they become active in, in giving meaning to other experiences of life that have been neglected, that are much richer and uh, that bring with them you know, many, many possibilities. And those stories are often hidden. Well, I think they're also, I think in many ways uh, life is multi-storied, but there are often storylines that um, contradict the sort of dominant storyline. I sometimes think about them as the subordinate stories of life. We can play a part in, in helping people to uh, redevelop these stories of life and to elevate them, and they provide a foundation for possibility in life. I wanted to highlight something there. Quote, there are often storylines that contradict the dominant storyline, and I sometimes think about them as the subordinate stories of life. We can play a part in helping people to redevelop these stories of life and to elevate them. And they provide a foundation for possibility in life. Unquote. One of the other connections between narrative therapy and the act and process of writing and then reading is one of catharsis. 
in the ancient Greek sense you use that, Michael. Can you explain briefly what that notion is? There are a number of meanings of catharsis at that time. There are some peripheral meanings around purging, but the central meaning was something like this. A, a person went along to witness the performance of Greek tragedy uh, in the company of others, and um, if in some way uh, they were moved uh, on account of witnessing this performance, then it was cathartic. And now the word moved was generally meant in much broader terms, like if, it, if, if on account of witnessing this, the person had new understandings about aspects of their own history or if they'd re-engaged with values that had been precious to them, that they'd forsaken, or if they had new ideas for conversations with members of their own family, etc., then it was cathartic, had been literally transporting of them. So if on account of witnessing this performance they'd become like other than who they were at the outset of the performance in some way, then this was cathartic. It's a very different concept of catharsis. And you use catharsis in your therapeutic practice. It's a very, very, very significant part of my practice. I think a lot about how, in fact, it becomes possible to establish contexts in which catharsis can be acknowledged. Quote, If in some way they were moved on account of witnessing this performance, then it was cathartic. The word moved was generally meant in much broader terms, like if on account of witnessing this, the person had new understandings about aspects of their own history, or if they'd re-engaged with values that had been precious to them that they had forsaken, or if they had new ideas for conversations with members of their own family, etc., then it was cathartic. It had been literally transporting of them. Unquote. I think it's a beautiful description of what art can do. Michael White goes on to talk about the stream of consciousness, memory, and trauma. Michael, how we capture our sense of self in the narrative therapy room, it's an interesting process. And one of the approaches is to look at the stream of consciousness. What role does the stream of consciousness play in your approach? The stream of consciousness is uh, a term that comes from the work of William James, who was a uh, 19th century psychologist. And uh, he, he made it his task to try and describe internal experience, or if you like, the language of inner life. And um, in my own work, I find that, uh, you know, I, I meet many, many people who are feeling quite desolate and quite empty and... Uh, it's pretty clear to me that uh, most of these folks have a very thin sense of that stream of consciousness or a thin experience of it. They don't ever immerse themselves in that sense I, of self. I, I'm not sure that it's uh, very available to them, and I think it's a, a very, very important dimension of experience, but I don't think it's very available to them. They don't have a strong sense of myself. Uh, you know, they, they have a sense of me, but not a sense of myself. And so... What do you mean by that? What's the difference between me and myself? Well, I think maybe uh, we've all had experiences when we've been a bit stressed out and vulnerable. We, we lose sight of our usual problem-solving skills and we don't know how to proceed. Some people even, even experience vertigo under these circumstances. And I think in these circumstances, after the event, we can say, look, I know it was me, but I wasn't myself. We've all had those experiences. And there are some memory theorists who suggest that the sense of me is founded upon autobiographical memory, which is relatively formal. It includes uh, aspects of recent experiences, but also memories of more you know, remote experiences of life, and these sort of fit together in a relatively linear, straightforward way. 
and it's part of episodic memory. These memory theorists would argue that there's another memory system that we could call like the stream of consciousness, which is a, a distinct memory system that's much more narrative in form and shape. It's very rich in analogy and simile and metaphor. It's not strictly linear. It's, it's a bit like I'm thinking about one quote from William James when he talks about the uh, language of inner life being a bit like the flight of a bird, where there are perchings and transitions, perchings and transitions. So according to memory theorists, our stream of consciousness memory allows us intimacy with ourselves. And, much more than the biographical events of our lives, it gives us the foundation of our identity. And again, if you're interested, you can go to sfbanter.org, click on show notes, and there'll be a link to the full episode put out by All in the Mind, a podcast by Australia's Radio National. And that was uh, Gretchen Miller interviewing Michael White and also... Uh, author Barbara Brooks is in conversation with Michael in that episode. Uh, Michael goes on to give a case story about Frederick. If you haven't heard that, you can check that out as well. Up next, in June of 2006, Dr. Donald Bubenzer, professor of Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, was interviewed by Tom Newman of the Counselor Audio Source podcast. Enjoy. Could you explain for me a little bit about um, maybe the underlying concepts of narrative therapy? Uh, I, I can. Uh, I guess one of the things I feel is that uh, narrative is intuitive with people. Okay. Uh, if you uh, talk to little kids, they always have a narrative about who they're going to be in life. Okay. You were going to be a cowboy or a rancher or... Uh, I was always going to be in wildlife management uh, some way. Okay. And you not only have an endpoint, you usually have some story about how you're going to do there and even things that you're doing at the time. I was always going around trying to start little fires where I would uh, cook food over it and some, and that was part of my story of, of who I wanted to be as a in wildlife management. Uh, now, when I realized later you had to deal with cells and a lot of stuff in biology and not just <laughs> field work, it kind of turned sour on me. But there's an intuitive process to narrative where I think that people have somewhere they're going in life. Okay. And that people who are stuck either are going somewhere they don't want to end up or they need a new dream. And so uh, I think a lot of narrative work is awakening the dreams of uh, unfulfilled pasts, I suppose, in some way. Uh, and so I, a primary assumption, and, and narrative work is really tied to social construction to me, is that any circumstance can be described in an infinite variety of ways. And so uh, maybe uh, a certain event has a meaning in one story and a different mm -hmm. meaning in another uh, story in some way. Uh, where maybe uh, starting fires and cooking food uh, has a part in a story of being a wildlife manager, but it may also have a part of being resourceful and a leader in some other story. So okay. the same event can be told in different ways, and that's really where the hope in life comes from, that 
if life was so set uh, that a particular set of circumstances generated a specific outcome, we wouldn't need any counseling. Okay. And it's the the idea that we can uh, alter the meanings of events in our lives to fit a new end goal that gives people hope okay. in some ways. Ultimately, it's about uh, how do you help people construct the life they want to live. Okay. Pretty exciting stuff. Uh, yeah, pretty sounds... much, uh, you know, what story are you wanting to be? Who do yourself your, see yourself as being? What would you say really um, are some of the benefits to the client um, if they were to seek out someone versed in the, the narrative approach? <laughs> you know, I uh, let me sidestep that for just a okay. second. And I suppose this is a part of me that I think there always have to be benefits for the therapist. Mm -hmm. And uh, the benefit is in working with clients in this way, you continually think about the story that you're living and want to live as a counselor. And the richness is that you get to see how other people live their stories and deal with life. And mm. all of that's very uh, uplifting uh, for you as a as a counselor. Now, the benefits uh, for the client, I think, would be the same thing, that uh, uh, folks may, as you loosen the demons of the past, certainly feel... Uh, freed or forgiven or forgiving, uh -huh. uh, and those are all uh, experiences that help people feel more settled and grounded and confident and comfortable. Okay. Um, then when you think about, well, I also get to choose the part of the world that I feel I want to be a part of. Uh, and get to work towards that story that I want to live, it's very uh, uplifting for clients. They get excited about themselves. It's pretty freeing when you think that, uh, you know, I can spend my time being and drawing forth the story that I want to have in life. Um, I think that uh, Michael White, who is probably the best-known narrative therapist, uh, would really take that to heart. He runs a practice in Adelaide, Australia, and he works a good bit with Aboriginal populations mm -hmm. who don't have ways to pay for the work that he does. And uh, so he travels the country, world, doing workshops and so forth, and he uses the money from those workshops to keep his practice uh, alive and uh, helpful uh, in a population in a country or part of a country where it mm -hmm. can support that. Well, he's thought pretty carefully about what who he wants mm -hmm. to be and how he wants to use and steward uh, the resources mm -hmm. available to him. And so I think uh, people feel their lives are enriched. Uh, I think uh, for me, it's it's almost uh, inextricably brought together the, the, the two things that that have fascinated me that I've heard you speak about are, are first the, the narrative approach and second um, the use of letters in both therapeutic and and in personal meanings. Mm -hmm. I don't know if if you see those as as closely related, maybe as as I've taken them to be. But uh, um, in hearing you talk about how you've um, used letters in your life, um, you know, has really I don't know maybe got me pondering my own narrative in a lot of different ways as as a um, growing counselor as a 
as a person involved in the lives of the people around me. Um, could you share a little bit about um, what makes uh, letters so powerful? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, they may not be so powerful every for everybody, although I think actually letters are becoming more powerful. We live in a world of junk mail and emails, and uh, both are often kind of cheap. Uh, junk mail, obviously, uh, just trying to get us to buy into the story that we have about our economy and what we need in, in life. And uh, uh, emails are often uh, fairly thoughtless and... Uh, I know I've pushed the button to send an email when I wish I could pull it back and think a little okay. bit more about it. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so to take the time to write a letter, I again, it's almost like doing therapy. It's as enriching for the therapist as it is perhaps for the client. Writing letters, whether it's therapeutic or uh, personal, uh, they're both therapeutic. Uh, I hope for the person that receives them, they're always therapeutic for me uh, as a writer. Uh, when I write letters to clients, of course, I'm, I do it really uh, as the records I keep on clients. Uh, certainly, uh, insurance may require us to keep some information, mm-hmm. uh, although uh, any information I have on a client, I want to be their information. I want to be able to share it with a client. And so what I would do, and this is really drawing again on the work of Michael White and David Epstein, is uh, after a session, I will write the client a letter. The benefit of it for me is that in thinking about the client and who they want to be and how they are becoming that, I become much closer to the client. Uh, Sometimes there are clients that Uh, you don't feel like you get to know very well. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe because of how they present themselves and maybe because of uh, a little difficulty I have in receiving it at at times. And uh, yet to sit down quietly for a half hour after a session and uh, begin to think about their life and who they want to be, what's happened in their life that has influenced that, and then to begin to write to them in ways that affirm them for who they want to be and how what they're doing is helping them to become that, uh, I think is affirming to them. Clients obviously say that when they come in. But it's equally affirming to me as a counselor uh, because uh, I think it's important that you care about clients. And if I have a client I don't have enough caring about, then writing a letter often will let me uh, care about them a little bit more. That was Dr. Donald Bubenzer, professor of Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, being interviewed by Tom Newman for the podcast Counselor Audio Source in June 2006. Jumping ahead to June 2010, Dr. Walter Barra, director of the Kenwood Therapy Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is interviewed by Ted Meisner, of the podcast Secular Buddhist. Um, they talk about different views of the self in Buddhism and psychology, and they start this excerpt talking about Buddha's words being translated through different countries. Buddha's words were first written into Pali, mm-hmm. and, and 
uh, and then you know moved and spread out from there and yeah. Sanskrit and Chinese and back right to and then I came to you know Zen Chan and Zen mm-hmm. yep um, the first translations uh, in the West were in German and the German well, the Germans were the first translators of Pali mm. <coughs> and they did this in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1910, they influenced the philosophy of Hegel and others, so that you could do a lineage tree there, mm. uh, philosophically. Yeah. And that that led to uh, some of the people influenced what we came to realize that there's no grand penultimate meaning mm-hmm. of life. It's, it's mind. Mm-hmm. It's how you think of it. it, it creates it's the process it. of it, yeah. Yeah, the process. Yep. The and but the I have to say the we talked um, you and I before the interview about psychologists writing. Yeah. Yeah. And it is not. It's still not close to Buddhist psychology, uh, Abhidharma, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and because they continue to talk of itself. Right. Right. It, and it, it's, it's a very built-in function of psychoanalysis. Is exactly. about self. It's all about self, and which is about not self. <laughs> exactly. Right. And mind, you know, just, you know, uh, in process. You know, the aggregates of mm-hmm. the, how the belief in a self is constructed. And once you have a self, you have an other that's creation of alienation and suffering. That's one of the fundamental, radical, powerful insights. Mm-hmm. And we even see in, in modern writings on mind and consciousness, uh, and I'm going through Dennett's Consciousness explained, and talking about how the that sense we have of a self and a me is maybe a function of our, our pareidolia, our pattern-seeking behavior. That yeah, we see this as something where really we're it's the process itself that we're having a sense of, and we're yeah. identifying that as a thing. Yeah, in the same way that in narrative ther- therapy, people will tend to identify that. That suffering that experiences self when yeah. yeah I'm the problem I'm depressed I, I am right. and that's a that's a that's a logical error because mm-hmm. you're not one one thing one thing <laughs> yeah, right yeah. you're it changes constantly so in the West the emphasis on pattern and what's consistent mm-hmm. in the East is on change right. on process right right in the West there's a fixed self in the East there there isn't a the, the self is idea of self is what contributes to suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the West, uh, uh, there's individualism mm-hmm. views of things, and that in the East is the understanding of inter- interconnectedness. Right. right. And then mindfulness now is on your licensing exams in psychology. Oh really? Oh yeah. You you don't unless you know mindfulness-based stress reduction, unless you know about neuroplasticity <laughs> and okay. brain studies. You know, um, you know. You, so it's it's really uh, had a big impact. But I'm still very I'm still disappointed with uh, Western psychologists' writings on Buddhist psychology. And one of the things I hope to do is write just a monograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to bring actually a well-founded mm-hmm. Buddhist psychology into greater visibility. And that was Walter Berra in conversation with Ted Meisner for the 
Secular Buddhist podcast, June 2010. And I was really interested in that discussion because, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, I feel like Buddhism uh, has really shaped the, the thinking and the discourses of a lot of the therapists and just people that I know. I myself have been involved in Zen Buddhism for a number of years. And the way that Western psychologists uh, talk about Buddhism and bring Buddhism into their conceptions of people um, is not so interesting to me. It seems like it's a lot about creating a stable, healthy individual that can eventually transcend that stable, healthy individualism into something else, something transpersonal. But it de-emphasizes ethics, and it de-emphasizes other ways of living beyond living to calm and stabilize oneself as an individual. I just think there's other ways to talk about the self, even in the discourses of Buddhism, that are kind of not looked at when Western psychology is trying to integrate Buddhism into their practice, into their conversations, into their theory. So I hope Walter Baer does write a monograph. I don't think he has. I couldn't find it online. But it's a conversation I'm interested in having with other narrative therapists about um, the influence of Buddhism and the discourses of Buddhism that are being attempted to be integrated into psychology. There's a, a fellow from Australia, Ian Percy, who wrote a paper called Awareness and Authoring, the Idea of Self in Mindfulness and Narrative Therapy in the U European Journal of Psychotherapy and Counseling in 2008. And he was on the reauthoringteaching.com uh, collaborative salon and did a presentation about mindfulness and narrative therapy that I thought was really interesting. Looking at mindfulness in different ways and critiquing the ways that mindfulness is uh, sometimes being used or being talked about or sort of taken out of context from the other Buddhist practices. So he's an interesting um, thinker to look up and, uh, and follow some of his work if you're interested in this subject as well. Also, Chris Hoff from Orange County, California, hosted the Radical Therapist podcast, which we'll have an excerpt from um, at the end of this episode. He wrote an article entitled Relational Buddhism Continued or the Selfishness of Mindfulness as published in the latest issue of Inside Dharma newsletter. I haven't read it, but I messaged him for a copy of it. If you're interested in a copy, uh, get in contact with Chris and see if he'll send you a copy of the article. Great title, provocative title. I'm really interested in reading it. Next, you're going to hear two excerpts from the podcast Harm Reduction Radio. Kenneth Anderson is the host of these, and he had a major addiction with alcohol and television um, that led to him being homeless uh, for a while. And a lot of the programs that were available to him were 12-step programs that he says didn't work for him, made him to want to drink more. And when he eventually found harm reduction approach, that seemed to uh, help him. So he's very passionate about it, and he started a podcast called Harm Reduction Radio. He interviews a wide variety of professionals, a relational psychoanalyst, a behaviorist, uh, a couple narrative therapists who we'll hear from next, all looking at addiction outside of the 12-step model.
So the first interview or play comes from May 2012. It's an interview with Pamela Smith-Bell, who is the author of the paper From New Age to Neuroscience, Creating New Narratives with Meditation Programs and Guided Imagery and Addiction Treatment. And she discusses how she got involved with narrative therapy and what some of the dominant discourses that she was seeing in the program she was in previously. Do you see uh, traditional treatment paradigms as as helping people to create a negative narrative about themselves? Y- yes, and that's um, that's how I uh, kind of found narrative therapy. Um, I was working as an intern in, an, in a substance uh, treatment agency, and um, you know, and initially very naive and and thinking that. Um, you know, that this is science-based and, and, and the people were doing good, you know, empirically-based work and so forth. But as I just watched and observed, I saw a lot of things that troubled me. And I saw, saw things like the coercion, the belittling, the shaming, blaming, all of that, um, control, controlling what people wore, how they spoke, what their schedules were, who, you know, how they talked to other people and, you know, no dating and, you have to believe in God, and you know everything they did was controlled, and some of, and that bothered me a lot. And um, I wondered how um, I could work um, in that situation in a way that um, I was afraid that those things might be doing harm, but I didn't know if they were or not. But my gut kind of told me that that probably wasn't a helpful way of working with people. Um, but I was I had a dilemma because I'm working in the agency and the agency has policies and how do I maintain um, my own ethics um, and still work within the agency, you know, bounds. And um, so I looked and looked for uh, something that would be um, what looks seems safe to me and helpful, um, but yet wouldn't conflict with what other counselors were telling you know, the clients. And um, I found narrative therapy. And also, not just narrative therapy, but there are other um, models that I really like, like appreciative inquiry and collaborative therapy um, and uh, dialogical therapy. And these all are ones where you have a very respectful relationship with the client. And because of that, I just don't think that um, I have a right to tell people what they should and shouldn't do. So that's part of the reason that I I, I'm, um, I I like harm reduction because I don't think that it's helpful for me to make a decision for somebody else what they should do with their life. And that sort of fits in with, with all the different models that, that I kind of find useful for me. Pamela Smith-Bell talking with Kenneth Anderson on Harm Reduction Radio. It makes me think of the decentered yet influential position that uh, was so compelling for me when I, when I first was reading about it in narrative therapy. Uh, you know, we're not the center of change. We don't know the right thing for the client to do. We can be collaborating with them. We can be influential, um, but not at the center, not the, not the expert, not the one with power over the client to decide uh, what they need to do. The next interview Kenneth Anderson did um, for Harm Reduction Radio is with Jay Levy, the author of Homeless Narratives and Pre-Treatment Pathways, From Words to Housing, and Homeless Outreach and Housing First, Lessons Learned. 
Uh, Jay Levy's been working in homeless outreach and housing first for over 20 years. And he talks with Kenneth Anderson about um, his model of pre-treatment pathways. I think it is so essential to respect the autonomy of your client and, you know, to listen to what the client has to say. And, you know, it's a collaboration between a therapist and a client of, you know, what the goal is. The therapist doesn't decide ahead of time. They told me in school this is the goal and this is where we have to put people. It's it's not a bunch of round holes where you have to put all your square pegs. Yes, we really want to get away from the whole kind of fast food menu <laughs> mentality that somehow has, has come about in the world of uh, working with people and doing uh, therapy or clinical work. And, you know, when I think of pretreatment, there, there's five basic principles that we really uh, focus upon. One, as we mentioned, is, is relationship formation, and I think in terms of stages of engagement and eventually getting to that point of contracting and setting goals that the client can own. Uh, the second uh, principle is common language construction, and it's really important to uh, think of that in terms of stage, stages, that is understanding a per person's words, ideas, and values, and then utilizing some of those same words. I like to say that we develop a playground of language, and it's a mutual playground that we both go on to, which, is, which, is, which consists basically of those words that's being spoken up and back and are being accepted and mutually kind of agreed upon through our conversations and our continued welcome connection. And then it's off of those words and that understanding that we can begin to uh, bridge the language. There's a stage of utilizing language, which is, um, you know, I worked with a client, for instance, um, who saw me as a counselor and liked doing counseling with me. But when I went to connect him to a mental health clinic, he got hung up on the word therapist because in his house of language, the word therapist meant literally like the way it was spelt, the rapist. And he thought of therapy as being like a, uh, a kind of mind rape where people would extract things against your will from you. And he thought of even getting medications as kind of like a mind control. So that's where he was at in his world, and I had to connect to that and respect that and to come back around to talking about him seeing a counselor and away from the notion of therapist and support the transition eventually to him going to a clinic because he was interested in getting counseling in the way that I was doing counseling with him. So I had to find someone at the mental health clinic that would do a similar type of counseling, come from more of kind of a narrative uh, perspective with it, and, uh, and was willing uh, to be very sensitive to this person's world and the languaging that he did. Um, that was Jay Levy in July 2012 being interviewed on Harm Reduction Radio. I love that phrase that Jay Levy uses. We develop a playground of language, and it's a mutual playground that we both go on to. Up next, in January 2014, the Tamarack Institute interviewed Dr. Shanae Swart, 
who is based out of South Africa and does international training, coaching, and consulting, applying a reauthoring approach to co-constructing alternative narratives that guide communal and individual agency. Here's the Tamarack Institute interviewing Dr. Shanae Swart. In your new book, The Reauthoring of the World, you suggest that communities, like individuals, are shaped by the stories or narratives um, that inform how this community sees itself in the world. I'm curious to know, first, what led you to shift that focus? You've said a little bit about that, but um, I wonder if you could say a bit more about when you, what happens when you shift your focus from using these narrative concepts at an individual level to applying them at a community level. So, so part of, of the narrative principles as well that I haven't mentioned yet is as we, as we journey through life, it is very important that if the story shifts in our own lives that we invite a community to journey with us. Um, there's no way that we can all by ourselves, like superwoman or superman, uh, shift a narrative. Uh, it's always important that there's a community that journeys with us. We are, as human beings, connected in a web of stories. And when one story shifts, everybody's stories around us also shift, if they want to shift or not. So what I realized when I started working with communities is that you don't have to call on a community to work with you or journey with you on the shift. They're already there. And collectively, because we connected, the web of stories shift collectively and form one another and an audience and a witness to one another. Uh, it's just uh, the individual work is just amplified once it's done in community. And we live in so many communities. We live in our communities of work. We live in our neighborhoods. We live in our, our small family, extended families, and they're all forms of community. And when we are consciously um, talking about and offering the stories that matter in a community, the shift is just so much more. Dr. Shanae Swart being interviewed by the Tamarack Institute on the power of community and working within community not just working with isolated individuals. Um, if you're interested, check out the show notes for the full uh, episode. And also check out uh, the Dulwich Center put out a book called Collective Narrative Practice, articles from different people. And uh, I got a lot out of that book as well. Up next, in February 2015, Art Fisher, Director of Family Service of Western Nova Scotia, and Nancy McDonald, Director of Family Service of Eastern Nova Scotia, they are co-founders of the Nova Scotia Trauma-Informed Network. They discuss the trauma-informed movement, ways to extend it, and looking at it a little critically as well. This comes off of this organization called CH Networks, episode number 437, Family Violence Prevention, Building Trauma-Informed Communities. Here's Art Fisher and Nancy McDonald. What we've been developing in Nova Scotia is what we see is also a significant third step in the development of trauma-informed practice. And, uh, and so 
what we're doing critically is then inviting that uh, trauma-informed movement, uh, which moves from that um, understanding around um, uh, what's wrong with you to what has happened to you. We're inviting then a third piece to be added to that, which is uh, the movement then from what's wrong with you to what has happened to you to how have you responded, how have you survived, what are your skills and knowledges. This is Nancy. So trauma-informed training tends to look at the impact of trauma, but from a community-based violence prevention perspective, we strongly believe it is critical instead to highlight the impact of violence and define trauma as the person and the community's response to the violence. We are really wanting to resist um, familiar trauma-informed frameworks as well that tend to individualize and historicize people's experience. Um, instead, uh, as Nancy's attending to, we're wanting to address ongoing violence in people's lives um, and those experiences of systems, uh, systems harms and colonization. Um, so um, it, 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 we're also recognizing that it's constantly very important to be uh, critical about uh, the trauma-informed practices that we are participating in ourselves. There is not one version of trauma-informed practice. There is not one workshop or one model that in somehow becomes the trauma-informed approach. So we're resisting that idea that there is simply the trauma-informed approach. There's a lot of voices, there's a lot of history, and it's reshaped every day by the people we meet in our work. And so, uh, but very briefly, um, because we're resisting a very familiar trauma-informed model um, that locates trauma only in relation to past events and only in relation to impact and only in relationship to perceived resulting maladaptation, um, the, the, the language of maladaptive strategy particularly disturbs me. I find it particularly painful um, because what we're often referring to is how someone survives. And so um, one of the things we're questioning is the violence that actually becomes re-embedded within trauma-informed models themselves through our use of language. And so uh, I think, for example, of one woman who I connected with in the past and supported. Um, she came to me because she said she was going crazy. She felt she was going crazy. And uh, she felt she was way too reactive to everybody in her life. I found out in the conversations at one point, she explained to me that as a little girl, she had learned to hide behind the furnace. And so, and the furnace in the basement. And so at that point, when she had told me that she had learned to hide behind the furnace, what I, what I could have done was I could have at that point asked her what she was hiding from and who was the other person on the other side of the furnace and how were they hurting her. If I had done that, I would have went after the agency of the perpetrator. I would have noticed the perpetrator's agency. Instead, what I wanted to notice was her agency. And so then it was starting with asking her simple questions. How did you know when to hide behind the furnace? What did you keep behind the furnace to help you survive? What else did you learn needed to happen behind the furnace? How long did you have to stay there? How did you know when to go behind the furnace? And how did you know when to leave? So what we were doing together was in some ways supporting her survival skills and becoming visible. Now, her survival skills were becoming visible to me, but most profoundly and most importantly, 
her survival skills were becoming visible to her. And she had forgotten a lot of her survival skills. And why she had forgotten a lot of her survival skills was because they were overshadowed by the voice of violence. And the voice of violence in her life said, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're no good. I worry that if we talk about people in terms of their maladaptive strategies, and we talk about people as having only neurological damage, only shrunken amygdala and shrunken hippocampi, that in effect what we're doing is also we're replicating the voice of violence within a trauma-informed practice. So we really need to slow down and consider how our language within a trauma-informed practice can replicate violence itself. And so one of our critical, um, our critical ambitions from a community-based perspective is not to replicate the voice of violence in trauma-informed practice. That's why we're so passionate about people's skills and knowledges and very much attending to our stories about their deficits. That was Art Fisher and Nancy McDonald, February 2015, talking as part of CH Network's uh, episode 437, Family Violence Prevention, Building Trauma-Informed Communities. Art Fisher is the Director of Family Service of Western Nova Scotia, and Nancy McDonald is Director of Family Service of Eastern Nova Scotia. And when I heard this, I was really uh, glad to hear a kind of thoughtful, critical look at the growing movement to be trauma-informed and looking about some of the ways it gets talked about. I mean, I've gone to several trainings now where it's just, it's a PowerPoint presentation showing damaged brains, and they talk about shrunken amygdalas and hippocampi, and it's kind of, it feels kind of objectifying of people and not uh, the rich description of the kind of people I actually see who've gone through trauma and been through trauma. So thank you, Art Fisher and Nancy McDonald, for doing that webinar. And again, a link to the full episode is on the show notes website at sfbantr.org. Next, Dr. Lorraine Hedke will be interviewed by Cheryl Jones of the podcast Good Grief. This took place in August 12th, 2015. If you don't know Dr. Hedke's work, um, have been exposed to it. I think you really uh, find it interesting and different than uh, Kubler-Ross's work or other uh, work where the dominant metaphor around grieving is a goodbye metaphor. Uh, Lorraine Henke often works about helping to fold the person who's deceased into um, the living person's life more and keep a connection rather than go through some uh, stages of letting go and of goodbye. So here is Dr. Lorraine Hedke being interviewed on the Good Grief podcast. The assumptions that I work with is that when a person dies, they continue to matter to us just because they are physically not a part of our lives in the same way that they once were. Their influence in our lives, their love in our lives, their stories in our lives continues to have a place to be interwoven to um, the actions that we take, the way in which we respond to life, um, uh, and sometimes the purposes and um, directions that we may take. So we continue uh, upholding that relationship and finding a place for that relationship to inspire us, to feed us, to nurture us um, as we carry those memories with us for the rest of our lives. So it stands in... Remembering stands in opposition to a lot of what kind of the dominant grief model has been, which has encouraged people to 
let go of the relationship, to find closure, to move on from the relationship. Um, that, as you were saying, doesn't bode well for most people, and I would suggest that it, that it may actually even produce more pain when we take that path. Um, instead, um, when we're practicing remem- with remembering that we are actually looking at how do we keep somebody's stories accessible to us, how do we keep their presence, their love available to us um, to act as, as a soothing um, balm, if you will, in the face of grief. You know, this this caused me to think a lot about uh, which I, which I had when uh, most particularly when my when my wife died and my thinking about this formed uh, in mm-hmm. 1995 to think about um, what I considered myself to be saying goodbye to at that moment right. because there was uh, there were things I was saying goodbye to. Uh, sure. I was I was saying goodbye to having uh, a co-parent who could uh, who I could hand the kid over to. <laughs> You know, I was was saying goodbye to to having someone in my bed. You know, all these things, all these physical manifestations of the relationship, there was a goodbye there. Correct. But uh, I I certainly didn't feel that I was saying goodbye to her. And I wonder how you weave that together with people um, to, to acknowledge what is lost, yet focus on what is still present. Yeah, and... The trick is, is you're correct um, in thinking that we're not able to hold on to the, the entirety of the relationship. Death creates that kind of pause where we have to say, um, what parts of the relationship are now going to be different? What parts of the relationship can I hold on to? What parts might I actually want to not hold on to? Um, and what parts of the physicality um, force a change in how we relate to that person? So, like with your wife, that um, she didn't get to continue to, to co-parent in a physical way, but her stories got to continue to be perhaps interwoven in, in how you co-parent and how the kids then respond to her presence in their lives. Um, so, we're, so, rather than looking at exclusively the stories of what was lost, I might be asking people to select out what also then continues to remain, and mm. that's one of the places that kind of shifts that idea upside down of um, how bereavement has been thought of, to look at instead of exclusively the stories of sadness, exclusively the stories of what what is not here, but to also focus on what continues to be influential, what continues to be viable, what continues to be um, uh, something that that you would want to invest in for yourself, um, for your kids, um, so, so that um, uh, your wife's memory continues to be um, a critical nurturing aspect of, of everyone's lives. So a lot of times it's, it's picking those pieces apart of saying, you know, well, um, what parts are going to stay? What parts aren't going to stay? What parts do you want to actually maybe edit um, out? What parts would you like of that relationship to perhaps even be more distant um, for somebody um, uh, who might have had a more challenging relationship? So it's about um, sorting the uh, wheat from the shaft, if you will, um, mm. uh, and and death produces that time um, where time is temporarily suspended, right? Where we have that pause where we can say, okay, let's take stock of what this relationship has meant to me. Let's take stock of what this relationship will continue to mean to me from now until eternity. Thank you. 
By Cheryl Jones on the Good Grief podcast, August 12th, 2015. And if you're working with uh, people who are grieving or going through something yourself, or know of a friend who may be sort of caught up in uh, feeling like they're failing at the stages of grief or they're not grieving well or something, you might consider sending them a link to the whole uh, Good Grief interview with Dr. Headkey. I think a lot of people uh, would find it helpful, beneficial. Uh, you can find the link on the sfbntr.org show notes for this episode. The final excerpt I'm going to play comes from the Radical Therapist podcast, hosted by Dr. Chris Hoff, who is based around the Orange County, California area. And... If you don't know about The Radical Therapist, check it out at theradicaltherapist.com. He also just started a YouTube channel with the first video being uh, Five Ways Patriarchy Affects Men and Their Relationships. And as of the time of this recording, he has 28 episodes of the podcast up. And um, it's a lot of variety. He goes beyond the narrative therapy community to talk to a lot of different interesting thinkers. A few of the ones uh, I listened to recently that uh, got me thinking in some new ways. Episode 21 with Oria Lawn of the Empowering Clerks Network, which makes playful paperwork for individuals and organizations. Episode 10 of Amber Case on We Are All Cyborgs Now, where they discuss the effects of smartphones and people's attention and minds, the work demands inside the tech industry and how high technology is influencing the way people think about identity and what it means to be human. The excerpt I'm going to play for you today is from an early episode, episode four, August 23rd, 2015, where Chris interviews Dr. Anna Louise Keating, author of the book Transformation Now Toward a Post-Oppositional Politics of Change. In this book, Keating develops transformative modes of engagement that move through oppositional approaches to embrace interconnectivity as a framework for identity formation, theorizing, social change, and the possibility of planetary citizenship. Chris also talks about the work of Bruno Latour, who Dr. Keating quotes in her book, who's also a great article called Has Critique Run Out of Steam? From Matters of Fact to Matters of Concern. And I appreciate uh, Chris for bringing to my mind the work of Dr. Keating and uh, post-oppositional politics of change. And the way she talks about that she's not opposed to opposition and that opposition is useful. But if people are just developing oppositional toolkits to change, it makes it hard to sustain community. And for me, you know, the Trump inauguration is... Uh, four days from the time I'm recording this. So I would like to be developing uh, both my oppositional toolkit 
and a toolkit that's not just oppositional for change. And I think I appreciate her bringing bringing a word and a term and some ideas to other ways of going about change that aren't oppositional while still uh, valuing oppositional ways of change. Give it a listen. What do you think? Dr. Anna Louise Keating, interviewed by Dr. Chris Off. You start the book, Transformation Now, by pointing out how we are all trained to react oppositionally, right? We're trained to think oppositionally, and especially I'm now close to finishing a PhD program, so I've had a lot of training in academia about um, thinking oppositionally and how we build, you, you mentioned how we build oppositional toolkits. And I, I guess, um, do you want to say anything about that or uh, how these things come to be or how, you know, we live in a world that is, that we're being trained consistently, especially now, I guess, in, you know, even reading your Facebook feed, right? You know, it's just... <laughs> It's a uh, point counterpoint at this point, right? Um, yeah. And a, not a lot of dialogue, just a lot of positions being taken. Yes. Well, I mean, well, I mean, you know, that whole oppositional way of thinking is very connected with Cartesian thought, of course, mm. which has just kind of dominated the academy. And actually, I'm like, I used to be a really good, I'm good at like arguing. And <laughs> I, I personally, you know, I am, I I am oppositional or I'm really competitive or I mean, I have those I have those tendencies, maybe because of my upbringing, you know, maybe because, you know, it's like somebody says something like, hey, there's such a thing as a valedictorian. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go get that. Right. You know, so 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 I, I I have done a lot of that competition and I have not liked what it does to me. Mm. And so so there's the competitive hierarchical component. And I think that goes with oppositionality. And then I think just seeing it as a teacher and as a scholar and, you know, um, being in settings where, say, my work has been very attacked or where I've seen students go at each other, um, then just really thinking about the implications and seeing even physically how it can really, we kind of internalize it and it can even, you know, at times make us sick. Like I think I talk about happening with the debate around this bridge we call home. Mm. Um, Yeah, so so I, I think it... I think that's why I kind of like stumbled across this. What is the alternative to being oppositional? Yeah, well, you because you, you raised the point that this kind of oppositional consciousness has been vital to important social change, right? Yes. Um, but it is. But you met. But you make the case that it's too limited to bring about like long the long term change that we're looking for, and it kind of keeps us immersed in conflict. And so I guess I'm, you know. And you point out, I guess you go on to point out, but, you know, what is bad about oppositional consciousness, right? Um, and how how this, and I, you, I guess I started to think about when I was reading this, even in my own life, how, or how I was seeing um, um, activism or kind of some of these things. I, I, you really say something, I think, quite important, and that's how some of these, oppos- how this oppositional energy tends to turn against itself in some ways and begins to take down movements and communities and these kinds of things. And I think of like some of, you know, over the last year or two, the toxic Twitter wars of feminism, mm-hmm. the Occupy movement kind of crumbling from within, uh, some of these kinds of things that are happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get that oppositional energy going, you're fighting for social justice, you believe passionately in whatever it is, 
but it's just very hard to turn off. So mm. instead of the enemy or whatever being this this external system, it often ends up becoming the people that you're actually, you know, trying to be in collective with. And and for me, I think it's when I saw that, um, especially right around the year, maybe like 2000, 2001, um, maybe even a little earlier when Anzal Dua and I were working on this bridge we call home. Mm. And, I, and I really thought, you know, here's all these people who, um, through the internet and through phone conversations, I really had gotten to know a lot of the contributors, like, pretty well and they were all like really compassionate kind people but when they um when when they when they found out that the book which they should have known from the call for papers when they found out that the book was going to have um white women in it Mm. they just they just reacted in these ways that you know that and even some of the reaction was almost against people who suddenly revealed themselves as white, and then suddenly the reaction really changed. I mean, and and I just it was it was like that that just that way of thinking. It's almost like it could not be turned off, mm. right? Right. So so it just it just you know this what had been this great online community, um, and the contributors were kind of like talking amongst themselves. It just kind of like imploded. Mm. Well, and I was thinking even I'm I'm a practicing therapist, right? And I'm a practicing therapist who um, wants to work from a position of social justice or attend to social justice. Um, but also, um, my training involved a lot of you know critical theory. So you know, and, and, and so, but what I've noticed now is that when you acquire some of those lenses, and I've had to be really reflective about it myself, is when you require some of those lenses, you begin to. It's all you can. It's the only lens you can use, right? Yeah. And then um, it kind of, uh, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues that it, it begins to shut down other, and, uh, and you allude to this often in the book, but it begins to shut down other kinds of possibilities, ways of looking at things, invitations, um, those kinds of things, right? Yes. Yeah, it really does. Okay. That was Dr. Anna Louise Keating being interviewed by Dr. Chris Hoff for the Radical Therapist podcast on theradicaltherapist.com. And if you're interested in that conversation, uh, check out the full episode on the website. I'll put a link to the show notes as well. And check out more of the Radical Therapist uh, shows and the new, newly created YouTube video channel. Thanks, Chris, for all your uh, great efforts to bring us Uh, radical new ideas and thought-provoking ideas. Uh, I'm a listener and a fan. That concludes this episode of Banter Radio. I'm your host, Will Sherwin. And as I've been saying, go to the website sfbantr.org for links to the full episodes um, for any of the, those excerpts that piqued your interest that you've been thinking about. For the next episode, I am thinking of going to the April 9th Pomo Gathering in Los Angeles that Kathy Adams is organizing and doing another a part two of the narrative song discussion. We pick songs that are evocative of narrative principles, and we discuss them in a group. So if you can make it, that would be great. If you can't but know of a good song 
that uh, makes you think of something, some narrative principle, email it to me at www.sherwin at gmail.com. All the music from today's episode was put together by me from the loops that the GarageBand software provides. That's it. Thanks for listening.